Good morning, Grace. This morning's reading is from Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely or for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this year in 2020, we have been focusing all our sermons on the person of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. And we've done different sort of series within that, but today we're going to do something special for just one week which is we're going to look at why do we have confidence that the Jesus we read about in the Bible is the same Jesus that existed 2,000 years ago in Galilee and in Palestine and who went to the cross for our sins? How can we integrate what's sometimes been called the Christ of faith with the Jesus of history? And why should we believe that the gospel writers do that well? Maybe this is something you've never really thought about or worried about. And so if that's you, I'm, I'm not trying to create trouble in your faith at all, quite the opposite. But I know for some of you, this is something that weighs on you, is how can I trust, how can I know that what the Bible says about Jesus is true? And maybe especially this is a problem for you if you've read a book or gone to a website or watched a YouTube video that's called into question, maybe with something that sounded really compelling, the idea of a historical Jesus. For me, the first time I encountered that, I was in college, and I had grown up in the church, and I had grown up uh, reading the Bible and reading about Jesus, and I certainly didn't grow up in a Christian culture. I went to a public school in California, and so I knew a lot of people who didn't believe in Jesus. That was sort of the majority of my friends, but I never really encountered an academic objection to Jesus. And so when I, was in, when I went to college and one of my majors was in religious studies, I found out that there was this whole world of people that had, at the time, what seemed to me as very complex arguments against the Bible's description of who Jesus is. And over the last 20 years or so since then, this has been a journey I've gone on personally in my own life and also with people as a pastor, as they've wrestled through why they can trust that what the Gospels describe about Jesus is not only relevant, but that it's true and that it's compelling for their life and faith. And I hope in our time today, we can look at how the scriptures themselves describe why they can be trusted about Jesus. And I hope in that process, it'll help you along in your faith as well. Now, even if this is not an apologetics thing you've ever worried about, I hope this sermon is helpful for you because it comes out of God's word and all of God's word is useful for correcting and training and rebuking all of us in the process of righteousness. So if this is a a thing that you're leaning into because you're like, I have wondered that for a long time, I hope this is helpful. If this is something that you've never worried about, I hope you don't feel guarded. I hope that you feel open to God's word, even as we are every week together. So let's get into it. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Let me stop right there because I want to talk about why this process of knowing the historical Jesus is important. Luke begins his gospel with this introduction statement that describes why he's written. 
And he says, I know I'm not the first, I know I'm not the only one who's undertaken to write about what's been completed among us. There he's probably thinking about some of the other gospel writers that we know of, like Matthew, Mark, and John. He may also be thinking of other uh, accounts, maybe short or long, of some of Jesus' teachings or life that have been lost to history. But he's saying, you know, what I want you to notice, Theophilus, the guy he's writing to and, and to us today, is that these things are worth recording, that much has been accomplished among us. Do you see that phrase at the end of verse 1? The narrative of the things that has been accomplished among us. Christianity is a faith that is rooted in events of history. As Christians, we say that we are people who believe that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, come to earth for us. Born of a virgin because he is a very nature God from God, who lived a perfect sinless life, and who died on the cross for your sins and my sins and was resurrected on the third day. And as Christians have, have pretty much always said, with very few exceptions over the whole history of the church, we are people who believe that the existence and truth of those facts is what makes our faith true. Now, I know that might sound obvious, but think about the opposite for a second. There are a lot of worldviews, a lot of religions, a lot of philosophies that would say, really, if it works for you, then that's great. It doesn't really matter whether it's historically accurate or not. The myths and legends and uh, parables that different religions and philosophies draw upon, it doesn't really matter if those events happened. It's about whether you draw strength from them in order to help your climb up the mountain towards the divine. But Christianity says something very different. It says that God has come down the mountain. He has come near to you, and he has come close in the person of Jesus, and he has made a way for you to come to God. And what matters is historically whether that happened or not, whether the tomb really was empty on the third day. So there's a lot on the line, Luke says, and scriptures say, about whether the events of the resurrection and whether the Jesus that's described as holy and pleasing to God really are historically true. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 outlines what's on the line here when he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's a profound statement, right? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. One of the translations says, then your faith is worth nothing. That's a sobering thing to say because none of us wants to think our faith is worth nothing. But Paul is laying out something really important here where he's saying that what is on the line in the resurrection is the whole of our faith as Christians. If Christ was raised from the dead, then that changes everything. But if he wasn't, if the historical events described in the Bible are just wish fulfillment, or a collective hallucination, or theological evolution, then there's nothing here worth preserving. So there's a lot on the line when we talk about whether what has been accomplished among us, to use Luke's phrase, really did historically, did historically happen. This raises an objection from a lot of people in our culture today and in our generation, where we say, you know, haven't we seen just in the last few years especially how much history is written by the victors, and how there's really no objective history. There's just histories, right, where there's different people who give their accounts of what's happened, but those histories are all so tied up from our cultural viewpoint and our gender and our, 
our worldview, that there's no real way to get at what accurately happened in the past. Isn't it worth just sort of giving up on this idea of an objective historical precedent? Shouldn't we just all agree that everyone kind of views the past through their own lens? Well, I love that objection because it, it begs something that's worth noting. Sometimes this objection has been described with this parable. It said, um, it's like the blind man who goes and feels an elephant. And he feels the elephant's trunk and he says, oh, this is what an elephant's like. An elephant is like a long rope. And another one of his friends feels the leg of an elephant and says, no, 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 an elephant isn't like a rope at all. An elephant is like a giant tree trunk. And yet another of the blind friends feels the ear of an elephant and says, no, you guys are all wrong. An elephant, it's much more like a, like a rug or a carpet than any of the things you're describing. This parable, um, which Leslie Newbegin talks about in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, is meant to teach people that pluralism shows that, that none of us really can see what God's like, or none of us can really see what history is like, and we're all just sort of grasping in the dark. But Newbegin's response to it is, yes, but there is an elephant there, isn't there? And the narrator of the parable sees the whole elephant, doesn't he? Doesn't the narrator of the parable take on this sort of omniscient role to see that there is something objectively, there's objectively true about the elephant, even if we're groping around trying to only describe a part of it? Newbegin says uh, that that is how we can respond to pluralism when we talk about God. Some people say that, you know, we can only see God in part. We can only see glimpses and pieces of it. And Newbegin would say, sure, from a human perspective. But we presume in that parable that God does exist and he is worth describing. And if, for example, someone were able to describe all of God or reveal all of God to us, wouldn't we be compelled to take his testimony? The same thing would be true when we talk about the historical Jesus. I think that history has shown us very clearly that Christians get the historical Jesus wrong at times. We can look at our own personal lives history and think about how much we've learned about Jesus over the course of our life and how we sort of laugh at ourselves when we think about how we viewed Jesus as a child. Or maybe it's not even funny to us because we're grieved as we think about how maybe our whole culture has misrepresented Jesus and we think, oh, how wrong were we to paint the picture to have the picture in our, our church as a kid of Jesus as the blonde-eyed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed version that a lot of us saw, right? That's not what Jesus, the historical Jesus would have looked like. And that's true, and, and we need to correct and learn from that and move forward. But those all presume that there was a historical Jesus worth learning about and studying about. And Luke says, I can show you what he was like, because in verse 2, he is drawing on the eyewitnesses who were there and who saw him. One of the, uh, the helpful parts of our current cultural moment, and there's a lot that we can complain about, about 2020 as a year and about where we are as a country, but one of the things that I'm really encouraged by is how much uh, our current country is interested in defending and learning about history. Whether it's on the left or the right, at least there's an avowed desire to say, we want to learn about what is true and historical about our country. This is very different than even 20 years ago when I was in college, when the emphasis was often on what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for you is true for you. 
And as a, as a country, I'm hopeful that we sort of rejected that foolishness and that childishness and said, no, what happened historically really matters. And as Christians, we say, of course, of course what happened historically really matters. And especially with the person and work of Jesus Christ, who the real Jesus of history was, and how we see what he has accomplished on the cross makes all the difference in the world. And as Christians, we are compelled and drawn into that person and work of Jesus Christ. Now Luke knows that he's not the only one to give an account of what Jesus has accomplished. In fact, he says in verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke says that the reason why he can be trusted in what he's writing is because he is drawing on a compendium of eyewitness testimony from those who have been there. This is really different than a lot of ancient history. A lot of ancient history is written hundreds of years after the events. If you ever read uh, Livy or Plutarch or, um, or even Josephus, you'll read about events that are narrated from hundreds of years before the writer. And Luke says, no, I'm writing based on eyewitness testimony. And we see that throughout Luke's gospel, right? Luke, who spent a number of years uh, in the same town as Mary, the mother of Jesus, draws on her own eyewitness testimony to describe the first couple chapters. Luke, who would accompany Paul and visit a lot of the churches around the world, the known world at the time, as well as Jerusalem, writes things about what different apostles have seen, what, uh, what the men on the road to Emmaus see, he draws on the witness of people who are there to write down what has happened. Um, there's a scholar named Richard Bauckham, uh, who's out of the University of St. Andrews, a, a brilliant man, and he's written a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's, it's an academic book, so I'm not necessarily recommending it to you if, if you're looking for some light reading during COVID. But if you're really wrestling with this question of, can we trust that the Gospels are based on eyewitnesses, Bauckham's a really helpful resource. And in that book, he lays out a case for why what we see in the Gospels represents eyewitness testimony. And he bases it on a number of academically historical criteria, such as the use of vocabulary, the uses of places, the use of time markers, and the use of sequentialism. And for Bauckham, um, this argument, which has been really compelling in New Testament studies, shows that Luke, as well as the other three Gospel writers, have a significant claim to being eyewitnesses to the events or drawing on eyewitness testimony to the events they're describing. Now, sometimes people sort of roll their eyes at this and say, yeah, but, I mean, Luke has an axe to grind, doesn't he? I mean, doesn't he say that this is drawn from ministers of the word? Right, that's what he says in verse 2. How can we really trust that Luke is saying what's objectively true? Isn't he just saying sort of the party line to get people to become a Christian? Isn't he just leaving in the parts that make Christians look good or makes Jesus look good and taking out the parts that make them look bad? <laughs> well, if that's what you think, you haven't read most of what Luke has written. Both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, which he wrote as well, he leaves in a lot of things that are incriminating and embarrassing to the early church. But he does it in order to establish his eyewitness testimony. But also, sometimes people say, and I've heard Christians say this, oh, I wish there was just some objective history about Jesus that we could read. Like, I wish there was something that could just prove that the Gospels were true. Like, 
isn't there something in Josephus or Tacitus or some other uh, ancient source that could really prove the Bible? And I get that longing, like I get that desire, and it would be great to have some sort of objective smoking gun archaeological piece of evidence. But I would say, what if I could point you to four accounts that offer eyewitness testimony from the first 30 to 50 years after Jesus' life? Would that be the sort of thing you're looking for? And if it would, they're right here, right? They're, they're in the New Testament. Yes, there are a lot of helpful archaeological pointers to the establishment of both Jesus' ministry and of the early church. There are um, ways that we can not prove the Bible, because the Bible doesn't need proving, but we can be reinforced in our faith in the scripture's authenticity based on what we see in archaeology. But the best sources of Jesus' life are very clearly in what we have in the New Testament. And Luke says that these are intended to be delivered to us. This is what he says in verse 2. Um, he says, we've received these from ministers of the word who have delivered them to us or passed them on to us. Luke says the intent of the New Testament writers, of, of the apostles, was in order to help pass these things on for our faith. There's a human role in this transmission, Luke says, but there's also a divine role, that these have been passed and preserved by God, that we would know what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, some people um, object to this. Some writers object to this and say, well, isn't Luke just writing, you know, way down the line, way after the fact, with his own wish fulfillment of what he wished Jesus was like? Or maybe he's, he's trying to establish what he thinks the Christian communities should be like. He's not really trying to narrate history. He's trying to predict or prescribe what the future should be for Christians in the future. And maybe, and the, the argument will continue on this, the objection will continue, maybe, um, Maybe there was a historical Jesus, and maybe he did some, some things that seemed remarkable, but he wasn't really what Luke describes. The historical Jesus was just a, a figure that Luke is drawing on to try to create his own dream of what it could be like if there was a divine figure like that in the world. How would you respond to that sort of objection? How Christians tend to respond is, well, one, well, where's the evidence of that? Is there, is there any evidence anywhere in any writings from the ancient world that suggests that's true? Answer to that's no. And the second thing would be, how often do you think that you can create out of nowhere the idea of the Son of God coming to the world to a people that didn't believe that God had a Son or could be uh, incarnate, and then convincing them that he died on the cross and raised from the dead? And how could you convince them within one generation, not only that that is possible, but that that historically happened, to the point that the people who said they were eyewitnesses would all be willing to die a martyr's death rather than to give up on the hoax that we're presuming. This becomes a pretty tough response at this point. The only response I've read, as I've, I've read critical scholars and skeptical scholars, is to try to say that, that the gospel writers must have written so far in the future, maybe hundreds of years later, uh, that that preposterous idea could have come to fulfillment. But the problem is there's not a lot of history that that ever occurred. In fact, the vast majority of history is on the sides that Luke does what he said he does, which is representing the eyewitness testimony of those who saw and participated in Jesus' ministry. Now, sometimes in response to this, 
um, people will object and say, Luke wasn't objective enough. Didn't Luke have a personal interest in proving the truth of Christianity? And that's what I want to get to in this last part, that our belief in historical Jesus is personal. Luke had a personal interest in it, and so do you, and so do I, and so does everyone. This is what he says in verse 4. Remember, he said, I'm writing this account for you, and here's verse 4, the reason why. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke says he wrote in order that we might have certainty in our faith. Luke says the reason for his gospel, and John says something very similar in his gospel, is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. This is where the objection sometimes comes up, and they say, aha, see, I told you. Luke is just trying to persuade people of his view of history. Historians can't be persuaders. They have to be objective, don't they? Well, that was the view about 100 years ago, that Historians could somehow separate their own biases and their own culture, and they could just objectively narrate what has happened in the past. The problem, as we've seen in the last 50 years, is that no one gets off of their own bias or their own persuasion. And as we've seen, especially in the last 20 years, the most helpful historians are at least the ones who can acknowledge it and acknowledge the way that what they're doing is affecting their work. Luke actually, while he may not have made a very good 1920s historian, makes an excellent 2020 historian because he shows at the very beginning of his writing why he is writing this. He is a historical theologian and he's saying, Theophilus and and all of us, I want you to see that what happened in history matters for you. It affects your life and it makes dramatic claims on your life. The reason Luke wrote is because he was deeply and personally convinced of his faith. And in fact, it was the thing that would guide his life. We don't know a ton about Luke, but we do see in both his writings in Luke and especially in Acts that he went to great personal sacrifice and cost to bring the gospel around the world. In fact, we'll see in 2 Timothy that Paul says that Luke alone is the one who is with him. 2 Timothy, you might remember, is the book that Paul writes in prison as he's getting ready to die for his faith. He says that everyone else has left me. Demas left because he loved this world, but Luke alone is willing to stick it out. Luke is someone who not only believed in the gospel, but was willing to put his life on the line for the truth of what he said. Now, is it possible that Luke was misguided or a fool, that he just didn't know any better? I suppose that's possible, but if you've read Luke or Acts, you see that he's actually a brilliant man. He was a physician by training, and a man of incredible writing ability. So I don't think it's that he was a fool or easily duped. Well, is it that Luke had some sort of personal cultural interest in uh, projecting this narrative? Well, Luke was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. This wasn't his desire to try to uh, advance his ethnic people group. No, I, I think the reason Luke was willing to give his life for this cause is because he believed it really happened And the Jesus who's narrating in the Gospels, and in his Gospel, really was who he said he was. And he says that the reason he's written this is so that his certainty could become our certainty as well. These Gospels exist to reinforce the faith that is given by the Spirit. Now, this matters not just in Luke's day, not just for Theophilus, but for you and I as well. You know, I, I hope that as we've talked about this passage, as we've talked about uh, the idea of a historical GS, this has been intellectually helpful for you. 
this has been theologically helpful for you, but, but I want to end with talking about how this affects your relationship with God today. You know, in Hebrews, it says that whether Jesus actually came and actually lived a perfect life and actually died for your sins deeply matters in your standing before God. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it says, we, don't, we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that the reason that we are able to come to God, that we're able to draw near to the throne of grace, is because Jesus really lived a perfect life before God. The reason that we're able to come to Christ in prayer is because he really did experience human life the way that we did. And the reason that we're able to know that God sees us as perfect before him and we have a hope for eternity is because at a time about 2,000 years ago, his son really did take our sins on his shoulders. Whether these things happen historically or not makes all the difference in the world, in our faith generally, but in your life in particular. I hope that as you look at God's word, you see the reasons to have confidence in its historical accuracy and in how it describes Jesus specifically. And in that, what I would love for you to do, or I'd love for you to lean in, is to um, see the Jesus who existed in history as your Lord and your Savior, the one who has lived the life that you and I refused to live and yet died the death that we deserved so that we could be with God forever. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your son. We are grateful that he's not just a great literary figure or a great theological figure or a great philosophical figure, though he is all of those things, but that he is the historical person who died the death that we deserved and was raised to life again. God, there is a lot about his life that seems spectacular to us and awesome to us and even hard to believe at times. Accounts of him walking on water and feeding the 5,000, being born of a virgin, those things are, by their very definition, remarkable. And God, if there is any pride in us saying those are hard to believe, God, we ask that you'd be merciful to us. But God, in those awesome acts, you revealed yourself. God, would you give us a deep sense of confidence in your word and in your son that our faith may transform us, um, that, that you may transform us in our faith in, in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.